Welcome to Seed to Scale. We're four investors with backgrounds as founders who met at the engineering school at the University of Pennsylvania. Tim Young. Nahal Mehta. Hadley Harris. We started ENIAC in 2009. With more than 80 years of combined experience building our own companies. We now lead seed rounds and bold founders who use code to create transformational companies. Starting a company from the ground up is really hard. In this podcast, we'll be having conversations with some of the most interesting founders, investors, and influencers. About the ins and outs of building an early stage company. We talk about it all. Funding, growth, and everything it takes to build a lasting business. Hi, everyone. Nahal here, founding GP at ENIAC. We're excited to be back speaking with one of the very best, say, founders and investors in the business. As a company, you have an existential crisis every 18 months, and that's called fundraising. And it's a test every 18 months if the marketplace of capital and ideas still believes in you. Mark, for those of you that don't know, is a managing partner at Upfront the largest and longest serving fund in LA, uh, actually started all the way back in 96, way before LA was dubbed Silicon Beach. Upfront has invested more than a billion dollars with about half of half of which going to tech companies from Santa Barbara to San Diego. Some of his investments include Bird, uh, Density, Embellus, Invoca, Makespace, Mitsu, Nanit, Osmo, Tax, many other amazing companies that are doing incredible. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So what do you think in your prior experiences make you a great investor every day? The truth is, I think there's a real important thing about modeling, modeling behavior. And so I speak to high schoolers, I speak to college students, I try to tell them the things that I wish I knew when I was their age. But the person who modeled the most for me was my mom. My mom was an entrepreneur. She launched several businesses. My mom was a philanthropist and an activist uh, for local causes, married an immigrant. And so these foundational things determine who you are. So I launched my first business in high school uh, selling T-shirts. And then my mom bought a computer to help her manage her business. This is the 1980s. And as a result, I started programming in high school. When I got into college, I studied economics and political science. I had a double degree, but I worked uh, three days a week in a computer store. So I mention all that because I went into Accenture because I wanted to be a computer programmer. Mm -hmm. And in 1991, that wasn't like a glamorous thing to do. You know, it wasn't. uh, It wasn't like people. There, was, there were no startups. Like, startups were rare. And what I got out of Accenture was the ability to understand large companies. Uh, it's very easy to demonize people at large companies, but there's a lot of smart, hardworking people at large companies that are doing things at a scale that startups will never see or know. Yep. Can you talk about LA a little bit? It's changing so fast. You know, you're you're like, you've been the number one cheerleader of Los Angeles. Your office is gorgeous with, with the rooftop overlooking the ocean there. And what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, maybe how quickly it has grown or some things that LA still has to do? Sure. 
I'm happy to. Look, as the infrastructure of the web has been built, really the value is accruing to the higher levels of the stack. And that's where LA really shines because we've always been a port of commerce. We've always been a bastion of creativity and ideas. And influencers today who are in their 20s or 30s, these people are digital natives. So it's no wonder that you're starting to see more innovation from people like Ashton Kutcher, you know, or, or you're able to go out and get sports stars. You're able to go get musicians that are interested in technology, startups, innovation. It's no wonder that the Kardashians are so fabulously successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Silicon Valley can look down on them, but these women, these strong women, uh, the Kardashians, they're building uh, real business empires and they're doing it in a savvy way. So mm-hmm. when you have people like that who surround you, who have kids at your children's school, who are out, you know, marching in the streets for women's rights with you, mm-hmm. um, it can't have but a positive impact on how you think about business creation. Yep. We love it for the weather. We, we, we don't like it for the traffic, but we like it for the Ubers. We can work in the back and it's, they're much cheaper than... Uh, Okay, I'm going to take on two statements you made, which are both factually um, not accurate. (laughs) Number one, L.A. is so much more livable, so much more commutable than the two alternatives of New York and Bay Area. And and I'll tell you that as someone who's lived in multiple locations. Now, number two, we don't want to take Uber. We want to take Bird. Yep. You know, just to talk about Bird for a second, why did L.A. embrace Bird versus you know, versus SF. And and obviously New York has its own challenges as well. Cities do have to get their heads around how these new modes of transportation are going to affect its citizens. So it's normal and understandable that they would get involved. You know, we put birds on the street in Santa Monica and Venice. We expected people to like them, but there's no way you could have predicted that they would massively change the way that people get around our cities. And they really are now becoming a community resource that people can use. And we see the positives of it, and so does city government. But city government has to deal with, okay, well, what does this mean for bikes and bike lanes? What does this mean for sidewalks and where we park these? And look, you know, we grew so fast. We just didn't anticipate how we would solve some of these problems. But the interesting thing is we're using software and we're using data to solve a lot of the problems. New York City has been very progressive. New York City is cutting back on Uber and Lyft because it wants to reduce congestion. But they've already publicly said that they would like to embrace the use of scooters. And in a city like New York, which east to west is incredibly commutable, north to south is only a few miles like New York City could largely get rid of its congestion by embracing solutions like this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's interesting seeing cities now starting to deal with, you know, compliance issues for for scooters, e-bikes, ride sharing. And it's fun to imagine what the future modes of transportation might look like, right? Fast forward 10 years from now, we could have like these autonomous electric, maybe private aircraft you know, we're building this Jetsons future. And so cities are going to deal with so many of these companies, all hopefully through software and APIs. We're seeing a, a bunch of startups now starting to solve that problem for cities. How can cities 
maybe have a dashboard and analytics with all of these different types of companies and provide compliance and maybe even procurement, City becoming kind of the new enterprise as their buying habits are starting to change and they and are starting to, to have to change to deal with all of these different types of companies. So super interesting. I, I, I would say that my own view for what it's worth is autonomous aircrafts are going to be a really important mode of transportation 20 years from now. I would be surprised if you see it over the course of the next five to seven years. I've looked so much at the industry and so much at the innovation and design and regulatory framework that I don't think you're likely to see it as personal transportation. And where the real in- innovation is, is companies like Zipline that are using it for medical emergency deliveries and blood deliveries and yep. you know commercial routes. I don't think you'll see it in our cities anytime soon. Yep. Mark, one of the things we love about you is your authenticity. You know, we obviously read about all of your thoughts kind of unfiltered on your blog, both sides of the table. You're very active on on Twitter and and other media where, you know, free free to speak your mind uh, politically or otherwise. What what the hell is happening to our country? Listen, I'm going to give you the unconventional view. I believe you have haves and have nots. The have-nots on the right, what their response to being a have-not is, is to be nationalistic and to rally around a world that no longer exists, which is a white Christian America. And it's a normal reaction. You would expect that the leadership of the right would not foment that, but they are. And the have-nots on the left are disenfranchised groups that used to be supported by unions, and it represents immigrants and people of color, African Americans, and people who have been uh, mistreated for many years, uh, mass incarceration and the like, and they're fed up. And the right and the left believe that the center is not serving their needs. And what I think you're going to have is people pissed off on both sides, willing to blow up existing norms. And the rational people at the center who are saying, wait a second, we can work all this out. You know, we want to work it out because we like the existing establishment and they don't. And so they're willing to suffer the consequences of blowing up things like trade agreements uh, because the alternative to them is worse. And I think we need to understand that phenomenon because what you're going to see is a harder pivot to the left and a harder pivot to the right. Interesting. I'm going to go through some some quick kind of pseudo lightning round questions, just like one sentence answers. Sure. What are you most excited about these days? How cameras and laser and microphones and infrared and lots of devices in the physical world are able to interpret what's happening in the physical world and translate that into the compute world Uh, both as input and output. What do I mean? If you have devices like cameras, lasers, infrared microphones, you can begin to do things like monitor healthcare. We could uh, predict that someone would get Parkinson's or uh, Alzheimer's well before their doctors diagnose it because the little infinitesimal clues like a change in your voice, like a change in your gait, like a tremor in your finger, are things that can't be observed necessarily in a single data point with the human eye. But given a camera and given long enough, 
Um, it's very easy to interpret the physical world. And I think you're going to see a huge breakthrough in what's called HCI, human computer interfaces. And right now we mostly only focus on voice because of the rise of you know Siri and Alexa and Cortana and the like. Uh, but I think you're going to see an explosion in how we capture and interpret the physical world. What do you think are the top top reason or top reasons that later stage companies fail? Ah, top reasons that later stage companies fail. Well, I'll tell you at least one. I can't say it's the main, but I've observed this many times, which is companies in the early stage get a lot of interest and attraction and get users, raise a bunch of venture capital. If you raise too much capital at too high a price before your actual metrics have scaled, what people often do is they go out and they hire a bunch of staff. They assume that they will always continue growing and the valuation will only move up. Well, the problem is, is if it doesn't, they're not equally quick to contract, to cut staff, cut costs, prove more, hustle, work harder, and frankly, even to potentially adjust the cap table, the valuation, and the other things that you need to build a long-term success. So, you know, I like to say when you raise a big round of capital, if your business metrics are not yet there, you know, take half of it and leave it in the bank and build a business plan based on half of it. If you see real momentum in customer adoption and growth and repeat purchase rates or low churn, uh, then lean in and spend higher on sales and marketing. But if you spend the money and you don't achieve your objectives, those later rounds of capital are much harder to get done without evidence. And I think it causes a lot of companies problems. Yep. What would you say is the most challenging part of your day? You know, you don't seem to mind the traffic in LA uh, <laughs> that much, but what do you say? Is, what's the most challenging part? The most challenging part of my job is um, in our portfolio now, we have about 90 companies. And if you think about an individual company, as a company, you have an existential crisis every 18 months, and that's called fundraising. And, you know, it's a test every 18 months if the marketplace of capital and ideas still believes in you. And so you have this existential crisis every 18 months. And then you have some self-imposed crises, often not talked about a lot, but it's founders who are fighting. Sometimes it's founders who do bad things. Sometimes it's customers who sue you or your competitors who do things that are bad. Sometimes it's government. And so it could be that over a course of two years, you have two existential crisis, crises. Now multiply that times 90. I would say I have one crisis somewhere in our portfolio. Sometimes they're good crises, but at least one every week, sometimes two or three a week. So sometimes you'll find a company who's raising a massive round of capital and the crisis is everybody's fighting for allocations or they're fighting over board seats. Mm. And sometimes it's really nasty, terrible lawsuits between uh, employees. The thing is, when you're a seed investor or an angel investor or a passive investor, you don't live those moments. But I take, and everyone at Upfront takes, our board responsibilities very seriously. And there are times where you really, truly get weekends, evenings, all hours vacation ensconced in these disputes between sometimes not even involving you. And you don't have the luxury of just saying, 
you know what, I'm going to set this one out and let someone else deal with it. You own responsibility. So that burden, I would say, is with me constantly. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mark. Uh, you know, really appreciate your time, uh, your mentorship, your inspiration. People can follow you at M. Suster on Twitter. People can read your blog at both sides of the table. People can check you out and your companies at upfront.com. Uh, and thank you everybody for listening uh, to this pod make sure to also follow at seed to scale and subscribe uh, on anchor or anywhere where you listen to podcasts mark thanks again so much for your time thank you for having me